Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. My name's Jeff Gamble, I'm going to be your host, and tonight I'm joined by none other than Joel Eddy. Um, Joel and I have been working together quite a bit on the Longview podcast. Uh, Joel kind of behind the scenes up until now. He's been uh, basically a mentor to me as I've tried to get this podcast off the ground. You may recognize Joel from his own podcast, Wooden Cubes and Iron Soldiers, and also from his board game geek avatar, Ika Mouse, and also all of the wonderful drive through reviews that he has been doing for many years now. Um, when I first started talking about this podcast, uh, Joel and I were discussing games that maybe we could discuss together, and one of the games that came up was Eminent Domain. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a closer look at this game and uh, discuss it and see whether or not this is a game that we feel will have some longevity. So uh, for those people who may not be familiar with this game, Eminent Domain is from Tasty Minstrel Games. It was designed by Seth Jaffe with graphic design by Gavin Brown. Uh, Eminent Domain is a game that is a deck builder. Um, It came out in the sort of wake of the uh, Wave of Dominion. Uh, which was then followed by Thunderstone and Ascension and other games, as Joel will be uh, discussing a little bit later. And uh, it is a game that uses a role selection mechanic that is also similar to some other games that uh, you may find that you're familiar with. So rather than me uh, continuing to be spoiler here, Joel, I'm going to turn it over to you. And uh, the first thing I want to do is thank you for uh, being on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Um, so how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, and it's my pleasure. I've listened to every episode thus far, and definitely enjoy it. It's a pleasure to listen to. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that a great deal, especially you know considering all of the, the great work that you've been doing for years. And uh, I, I take that as a compliment as a fan of your podcast as well. Um, you know, Joel, one of the first things that I always ask people when I do an episode of, of uh, The Long View is, what is it that originally attracted you to this game or got your attention when you first heard about Eminent Domain? Uh, well, you know, when I first heard about Eminent Domain, I think it was August of 2010 or maybe September around then. And there hadn't yet been a whole ton of deck building games. You know, there was Dominion and then Thunderstone and then Ascension had just come out. And so I was right away interested because I have sort of a background as a you know magic player, a versus system player, uh, which is another trading card game. And uh, I was always attracted to you know the deck building aspect of Dominion and Ascension and things like that. And so anything with deck building in it at that point, I was very keen on. Now since then, we've had I don't know how many different deck builders. So if somebody came to me today and said, "Oh, there's a new deck builder." It have to be something pretty special uh, for me to, you know, be interested in at least uh, for the most part. So, uh, what was it about this game that you felt kind of made it different? You and I talked a little bit about this, and and I, I wanted to kind of touch base on that uh, before we move forward, because you made some interesting comments talking about how this game sort of reminded you not only of other role selection games like Glory to Rome, but it also reminded you a little bit of Puerto Rico. Uh, would you mind explaining those connections that you see? Yeah. Um, well, the thing with... Uh... The Puerto Rico connection is basically in Puerto Rico, you have all the different buildings that you can get. And as long as you can pay for them, you can get access to them. And you can always kind of each game try a different strategy. 
So with uh, eminent domain, it's kind of the same thing where you've got basically three sort of loose technology trees that you can pursue. And so you can kind of enhance your strategy of maybe settling or conquering a bunch of planets and trying to get points that way. Or you could get technologies to uh, increase your uh, production and trade uh, and try to, you know, end the game that way and get a bunch of points that way. So you can kind of pick and choose and do whatever you want. You're not sort of hamstrung uh, by the setup of the game. So, and, and that's, that's one of the main aspects of Puerto Rico that I like um, is the ability to just kind of get to down and try a strategy uh, this time and see how it works. So do you think it has something to do with the ideas of sort of choice and control? Do you feel you have more choice and control in this game and, and maybe that's why it reminds you a little bit more of, of Puerto Rico? Right. And, you know, one thing that I don't like about Puerto Rico is the whole forced role thing where, you know, the roles are removed from you. You can't take, you know, captain or when somebody takes captain, you know, you've got to ship your goods. I might be screwing this up. I haven't played Puerto Rico in years. But, no, no, you pretty you much know. got it right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing I don't really care for because you got, you got the one aspect of, well, I can do and I can kind of play and do what I want, but then it's totally dependent on the players around me. And it's sort of like a passive aggressive player interaction thing that I don't, I don't really care for in that game. I like it in other games, but you know, I can't really pin down why I don't like Puerto Rico as much as other games, but this one, it takes some of the elements that I really like about Puerto Rico and then the pacing of the role selection and how the roles, you know, fill your deck is one aspect that I really is interesting because if you take colonization too much, for example, your deck is going to be full of colony cards and then you won't be able to draw any survey cards when you've, colonize all the planets you have so you have to really kind of balance and uh and watch your your pacing and things like that and, and you still got to keep an eye on other players but um so I, I'd like to I'd like to circle back to that idea of balance uh, definitely. So don't let me forget it. Um, but but I also want to return a little further back to something you just said, which is I, I never really thought of that. But that sort of forced role selection that you're talking about in Puerto Rico, I think that's a really interesting point because you know yes, everyone gets to. Um, participate in that role. Now, you don't in Puerto Rico for for those people who may not have, have played the game in a while or who might not be familiar with the game. This is a game where um, there are sort of several roles or jobs, if you want to think of them that way, that that you can do on your turn. And when somebody selects that. Uh, the person who selects that role is going to get some sort of a special privilege, but uh, and it's usually an enhanced kind of ability or power or lets you do something a little bit more than uh, your opponents are going to be able to do. But your opponents are also going to be able to participate in that same action. Um, and so, therefore, if somebody picks, say, uh, Craftsman, which is a role in the game of Puerto Rico, um, which allows you to produce goods from these plantations that you're developing, um, you know, in this sort of semi-historical sort of context, um, everyone's going to get to produce goods. The person who selected Craftsman is going to get to produce a bonus good, right? But the fact of the matter is, like you said, Joel, everybody is going to have to do Craftsman whether they wanted to or not. One mm -hmm. of the things that I think that this game, though, does is, you know, you mentioned Glory to Rome. And Glory to Rome does the same thing except with one crucial difference. In Glory to Rome, if you don't wish to participate 
in the role that has been selected by another player, you can do what's called think. Basically, thinking in Glory to Rome is you're going to be drawing some more cards for yourself, right? Which is going to um, increase your pool of, of possible actions and resources for that game. And in this game of Venom and Domain, you have that same ability to think. And, and I really like that option. And, and I think, I, I'm circling back to your original point, I think that might be something in this game that, that I really appreciate as well. I, I didn't really think of it until you, you said that. So uh, is that something you'd agree with, that, that that's kind of a blending of that Gloria to Rome mechanic with that Puerto Rico kind of role selection feel? Right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I actually played uh, Gloria to Rome after eminent domain uh so after playing glory to rome i kind of went back to him at the man i was like wow this is probably more like glory to rome than race for the galaxy which is what i think people sort of immediately compare it to because it's in space and it's got a bunch of icons yes but um not as many as glory to rome though or i'm sorry as uh, um uh uh, Race for the Galaxy. I think that uh, game no, no, wins the close, prize yeah. for most icons ever used in a game. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, those are the two aspects I really like. Um, other thing that I really like was it's got where you know it's got all of the technologies available, like Puerto Rico, and it's got the thinking thing. So what you can do though is unlike most of these other card games, like San Juan, Glory to Rome, and uh, Race for the Galaxy is and it's almost like I'm maybe getting a little bit tired of it and there's I'm, there's not really anything wrong with those three games and how they do this but it's almost like this glorified go fish um, and it's mostly apparent in San Juan and Race of the Galaxy and I should say I've played those a lot more than I played Glory to Rome um, I probably played those more than I played Eminent Domain actually but um, and it could be just that sort of mechanic wearing on me and there's nothing really specifically wrong with it but Basically, in Race of the Galaxy, you get your six-cost development, and in San Juan, you get your six-cost building, and then you go for that, and you try to fish for either the six-cost or the cards that support it. Otherwise, you're going to fall flat, and you're not going to get enough points. And so I think I'm a little bit tired, personally, of that whole thing of like, okay, I've got these couple of cards. This is the right approach. Dig, 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 dig. Okay, did I, did I dig right, you know? Um, and this is different, you know, eminent domain is different. It's, it's, I can get in and it's like, um, it's like a toy that I can play with to steal, um, somebody else's quote. But, uh, and so I really like that. It makes it fun. Now it does have a problem maybe of being stagnant that way, but to me, that's sort of, uh, neither here nor there, uh, six, one and a half dozen because the stagnation is, yeah, all the cards are available, but then the stagnation of the other games is, yeah, I play and go fish every time. <laughs> so. Okay. All right. So what do you mean by stagnation in eminent domain? What, what, what about that, uh, the, the engine of the game or the mechanics of the game feels like it can stagnate on you? Well, um, and I think we talked about this before was because all the cards are always available then you maybe get locked into either maybe some group think or some personal solo group think of, okay, I've got to do these exact cards every time to execute this strategy. So you may lock yourself into only playing the game one way. And I think that's true. I've probably played this game close to 30 times, somewhere in the 20s. And I still enjoy it. I don't play it as often as I do. A lot of these plays were, you know, a year ago. Um, but 
I actually broke it out the other day, sort of in preparation, and I still found the same sort of joy because I hadn't played it in maybe a couple months. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think you can play it a whole bunch, and it's really, really fun, but then I feel like i got to put it away for a little while because I feel like I'm doing military trade every time, you know. Or, yeah, yeah. So i got to kind of get out of my own rut and then come and revisit it later. Yeah, you know, I, I've had very much a similar experience with Eminent Domain. I mean, I, I've I've been looking for a game to replace Race for the Galaxy. Now, I know that might be heresy to uh, quite a few people out there, but uh, Race for the Galaxy for me, um, I, I just uh, I, I kind of came to the conclusion I just must not be very good at that game. Um, and I definitely see the go fish kind of feel that you're talking about, and and it almost seemed like a race uh, to me. Many games to see who could grab those cards that they needed first, and then sort of gin rummy style, uh, you know, I'm out, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the game's just over. Um, and, and it often left me feeling a little bit unsatisfied. It also had the uh, dubious distinction of being one of the most difficult games I have ever tried to teach. Um, right. just because of the iconography, right? So when Eminent Domain came out, I was very intrigued by that. And then, of course, I was very intrigued as well by uh, Core Worlds, which is uh, another game that has kind of come out in this deck-building sort of space-themed genre. And mm-hmm. the thing about Eminent Domain that I really liked is the amount of control that you mentioned. I, the other thing that I liked is that it seems that there were multiple ways, multiple paths to victory in this game. You know, in other words, uh, a lot of games like Core Worlds to me, while it's a game that I really appreciate, um, uh, Core Worlds by Andrew Parks, and and it's a game that I think has some wonderful merits, it is very much, at least to my mind, I'm going to research technologies to help me take over this world by... Mm -hmm. Um, recruiting these great units, uh, these, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, ground units, and then these, uh, I don't want to call them airplane units because obviously it's space, um, but my mind is going completely blank. So you have like air units, aerial units, and ground units, and different planets require different numbers of units in order to conquer them. And so the game very much just kind of becomes very much, to my mind, of, of a little bit of a sameness of, Okay, I'm going to conquer this planet. Okay, then I'm going to go conquer that planet. And what god do I have enough guys to get this one before my opponent does? And and, and so that that kind of fell a little bit flat for me with some repeated play. Eminent Domain, circling back to that, the thing that I appreciated about it was that I had had a lot of success playing with a colonization strategy. I had had a lot of success playing with a research strategy and also a warfare strategy. So I liked the fact that there were different paths that I could take uh, and different strategies that I could try to focus on to win the game. However, the game also felt very vanilla to me. In other words, there, there, there just didn't seem to be a lot of variety. You know, when you look at a game like Race for the Galaxy or you look at a game like Core Worlds, when you look at those cards, they're all unique and they all say something different. And so there, there's a little bit of imagination at work there in my mind as I'm playing these cards and looking at these cards and imagining these things, right? Whereas when Correct. I play Eminent Domain, it's just kind of like, hey, it's a warfare card. Hey, it's a colonization card. So there, there's, not, there's not a lot for me to kind of hang my imagination on in Eminent Domain. And so after a while, I kind of found that while I really appreciate the engine of this game, uh, you know, when, I, when I'm talking about the engine, I'm talking about the mechanics of it. I think it's a very elegant design. And I love this idea 
of the more you do something, the better you get at it, the more effective you are. If I I take a lot of research cards, a lot of research cards are going to come into my hand, which is going to enable me to research more and more powerful kind of technologies and uh, benefits that I'm going to be able to use. So I really appreciate that. However, there was something about it that just kind of started to fall a little flat, get a little stale for me. Um, what do you think of that, Joel? Is is there something missing here in the Chrome? I mean, I don't know whether that's Perfect. just Chrome. What do you think? Yeah, I I was uh, definitely going to jump in there and say yes. Um, uh, when you're talking about core worlds, uh, that is is uh, is much more thematic, I guess you could say, because uh, like I agree with you. I think I feel like when I play that game that I am actually conquering worlds. I'm building up armies. And I'm trying to, you know, progress my empire into the center of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. I really, I really get that impression of that. Now, with Eminent Domain, I think it was sort of started off as an intent to uh, be uh, Twilight Imperium, the card game, uh, you know, with the different things. So, but the theme of this game does not come across to me at all. It's sort of, I play this sort of from a pure mechanical uh, perspective. Uh, you know, like you said, because you just pull a research card and they're all, the whole stack is all the same. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, you get the first level of technologies are just improved versions of the basic cards, improved research, improved warfare. And I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. I think there's something missing. I don't know that the game, I don't really fault the game or detract from the game for that aspect because I don't really play it for that reason. Uh, but I do definitely see what you're saying where the theme just does not come across. I mean, there are certain aspects of it that the theme comes across. Like when you survey for a planet, you play a bunch of survey cards, which is like your little dudes going out and discovering new planets. You find one that looks tasty for your empire. You pick it, you throw it in your little tableau, and then you either colonize or conquer it. Um, the research, like I said, that feels somewhat thematic. But I think it's just a process process of taking those roll cards. Mm-hmm. It's just so repetitive, and even the most experienced eminent domain player is not going to get a whole lot of those technology cards in their hand. I mean, one of the variants in the rules is playing without the technology cards altogether. Yeah, which I which, can't imagine doing. Quite to be quite honest with you, I. Yeah. You um, know, for for me, the, I, yeah. Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. I was just going to say the first probably couple times I played it, I was just a buddy of mine. We kept playing two player, and there was a couple of games where I almost—it's been a while—but I want to say one game he beat me, and he didn't get a single technology card in his deck, and it was like, wow, <laughs> that seems kind of wrong. But I, you know, I, I was playing totally inefficiently, obviously. Right. Right. Um, but the fact that you can kind of do that and kind of not dip into that sort of variety and still play kind of effectively maybe is a, is, is a mark against the game. Um, I don't think that an experienced player that makes proper use of technologies is going to lose to somebody that, you know, doesn't use any technologies at all, but it's, it's, yeah, it's got that vanilla sort of staleness to it because you're not really jumping into those technologies very early either. You know, no, you've got to sort of get the planets and you're sort of just dealing with these really plain cards. So, 
Yeah, I, I I, I've often you know one of the one of the things that that I have a, a bit of a problem with with the game, uh, which is why I kind of jumped in there when you were talking about the technologies, is um, I, I really don't like the fact that the first level technologies are all the same regardless of what type of planet it is. Uh, in other words, uh, for those who might not be familiar with this game, there are basically, I think, uh, uh, three or four types of planets that are out there. There are these planets that are yeah. called, they're, they're like red planets, okay, which are kind of like these, you know, you imagine like these iron ore kind of planets. There are, you know, uh, your, your blue planets, uh, and then there are these ringed planets, um, and then there are these kind of like what they call prestige planets, which are really just all about kind of victory points. But when the technologies uh, in this game are tied to ring planet, blue-green planet, which is very much kind of like Earth-looking, and then these red planets. And there's a separate stack of technology cards for each of these types of planets. But when you look at the first level of these technologies, they're all the same. And this is something that, that I found to be greatly disappointing. Uh, there is differentiation in the decks as you dig further into the second and uh, ultimate level of uh, technologies. But in that first level, they're all the same. So it's kind of like I remember feeling as I was playing, like, well, what's the point then? Like, what's the difference? Why, you know, it, it doesn't really make any difference whether I have this type of planet or that kind of planet that I've conquered. So, again, I think that right. was an opportunity for some thematic kind of narrative to be built through the gameplay mm -hmm. that was completely missed. And mm -hmm. I, I don't understand what the decision process was there uh, because, you know, like you said, the, all of these first-level technologies are just improvements of the existing role cards. Now, right. one of the things that I've thought about messing around with, and, and I haven't done this on the long view before, but uh, I said, well, no, that's not true. We, we talked about this in the Thunderstone episode as well, you know, ideas to fix the game. I've often wondered whether or not a draft of those technology game, uh, of, of some of those technology cards um, might actually spice this game up a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know whether it would be you know, having players have the ability to pick maybe one of those mid-tier technologies or something and uh, uh, or those first-level technologies and, and just start with that, you know, as a way to kind of focus your thoughts and your, your attention as you, as you build your deck, whether that would be something that might actually uh, help drive the game a little bit more. But there's definitely something missing with those technologies. And I kind of feel that's a shame because that's one of the strengths of the game later on. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think that the reason that they are sort of similar across the baseline is because of the luck of the draw of the planet cards themselves. So because you'd not, you're not guaranteed to get a planet matching your starting planet, for example. Right. Uh, you you should be able to go into either tree and get what you need out of the tree to sort of further either warfare or colonization. Because the red planets, once you get into the second tier, are really kind of a warfare-based uh, type of planet. Uh, and then the earth ones are sort of a... Um, I always confuse whenever I have to look at the cards, but the earth ones are calling our uh, trading and production. And then the ring ones are sort of these utility cards. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. I always confuse those two, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So if I don't have 
uh, you know, a lot of warfare, but I start with like a ring planner, I can still get like an improved warfare going into there to help me as I'm digging through these planets. And so I think that it's, it's done for balance purposes and to sort of, you know, like everybody starts off on the same footing and you don't get totally hosed by uh, the plants. But I do agree, be that as it may, that may be correct. That is a mechanical balance thing. It still does leave the game feeling thematically flat. Right, right. Yeah, and much has also been written about, you know, the use of the uh, Galactic Emperor ships, which now seem to be fairly ubiquitous. Um, They're the same ships that were used in Eclipse, for example. Um, You know, but again, you, you have these ships, but... It really doesn't matter what type of little ship model that you use because all ships are basically the same. And mm-hmm. that was a, you know, something else that I felt could have been, uh, you know, maybe improved upon in the game design whereby, mm-hmm. you know, maybe tying the resources because in this game planets can produce resources which are represented by, of course, little wooden cubes. Mm-hmm. And so well, wooden know, discs, but yeah. A wooden disc. I'm sorry. Not uh, <laughs> pieces of wood. <laughs> Let's put it yes, that way. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so the wooden discs are are the resources, and maybe having those discs needed to build certain types of ships that would give you different advantages or something, perhaps, would have been another interesting way to go with it. But once again. We're kind of like, okay, we're going to give you all these cool ships in this game. And, you know, wow, wow, look at these. These are really kind of nifty. And what's the difference? None. There is no difference. Right. And, and and again, that's just something that uh, I'm hoping that maybe, you know, they might take a look at some of these issues in the expansion. Because here's the thing. With as much as I've been complaining about this game, it sounds like everything I've had to say has been negative. I really respect and love the engine of the game, the role selection cards. I I know the cards are vanilla, but I love the control that it gives you. And I love the fact that you can flush these cards. And so once you've used a lot of your colonization cards, you can get rid of them and thin your deck and then get more cards that, you know, uh, might be useful for you in this sort of second phase of your game. So I, I love the engine of this game, and it's the reason I haven't traded it away. It's the reason I haven't gotten rid of it. Um, but I, I, I definitely want more, and and I don't know what they're planning on doing, but, you know, I, I'm hoping. I mean, I'm looking at the back of the box, Joel, and it says, you know, explore the galaxy, expand your empire, colonize planets or take them by force, research new technologies, produce and trade resources, that all sounds awesome, but when I yeah. play the game, producing and trading resources, once again, it doesn't matter what color the discs are. I just trade them in, and and it does. So again, there's this there's this great feeling behind this game when I when I first looked at it, but when I played it, it really is a it's a mechanical thing, and it's a mm-hmm. it's a beautiful mechanical thing, but it's cold, like all right. nice mechanical things are. Yeah, and and agree. I agree with that. And just to kind of uh, color some of those thoughts that you said, uh, the ships are uh, were sort of an afterthought, I, I think. Now, and I had read this where the game had been designed to not have different sized ships, but I think, and I'm just kind of guessing there was some reason, but I think it was because the Kickstarter uh, was so successful right. that they wanted to do a really nice model. And so they had contacted, you know, whoever makes those ships um, 
And they said, yeah, we can make them for you, but it's cheaper if we give them to you in this sort of uh, bundle of the three different sizes. And I think they said, okay, go ahead and do that, and then we can maybe try to build a me- mechanism around that in a future expansion right. that will make uh, you know make the different ships act differently. Right. So I think that was the, the it's sort of just sort of preparation for an expansion there. But I agree, it seems silly that uh, you know I never grabbed the little ships; I always grabbed the big ships. Well, sure, you know <laughs> but, who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, but uh, and, and then in terms of the the resources. I also think that's a little bit of a, uh, an expansion preparation, but there are a couple of cards now that that uh, aren't specifically geared towards uh, the type of resource. But there's one card called card, uh, excuse me, called diversity. Yeah. So when you go to trade, if you trade in different resources, you're going to get a bonus point for each different type of resource. Absolutely. Whereas yeah. there's another card, which is, I can't remember the name of it, but if you pick a resource type and say all the purple ones, then you get a bonus point for each purple that you trade. So it's kind of based on if your planets are all different or all the same, then you choose you know one of those technologies. Right. And it's totally mechanical. There's no theme to those cards, really. It's like, okay, I got a bunch of planets that are the same. I'm going to get this card. <laughs> right, right. And, and then use it. But, uh, but I think it gives them room to um, – uh, well, you know, it kind of goes back to the control thing. Or like in Race for the Galaxy, if you get a bunch of yellow planets, alien planets, right. and, you, and you use those to trade, you're going to get a lot more cards, and then you're going to get a, have a higher chance of getting a lot more yellow cards. <laughs> Whereas this, you don't have that whole thing again with the Go Fish. And I don't, I'm not really trying to say one is better than the other, but I'm just calling out that. I think there's a little bit to that as far as the differences of resources to not make you know one resource always the best. Right. Um, but you know, it's that's kind of sort of it depends on your mood. If you you know if you want a game where you have a little bit more chance, then maybe the race is more appropriate. Right. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with that. I mean, this, this game mm-hmm. does not have those kind of uh, wild swings in fortune that you get in, say, San Juan or that you yeah. get in Race for the Galaxy or that you get in Glory to Rome, for that matter, uh, or Innovation or any of these other kinds of games. Um, right. But those wild swing swings can be exciting too, you know. So maybe that's that's a, a maybe a negative aspect to eminent domain is it loses some of that excitement uh, because you're you're not really in danger of everything just evaporating right in front of your eyes, you know. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Um, and, and you know, of course, uh, someone will eventually bring up uh, you know the the lack of player sort of direct player interaction in this game. Um, you know, if, if you're both vying for control of the galaxy, uh, it seems odd that you'll never really bump up against each other in a meaningful way other than, oh, darn, you settled that planet before I was able to. Um, you know, and, and, and so this game really does have a lot of that multiplayer solitaire kind of feel to me. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that, again, that was a, an opportunity to differentiate the military from the colonization roll cards, um, you know, the, the there was the chance, I think, in the design of this game for the military to actually maybe be able to be used against another player, you know, blockade a player's planet, take a player's planet over. You know, Race for the Galaxy tried that, but they did such an incredibly clunky job of, of coming up with a rule set for it that 
Uh, personally, yeah. I just couldn't be bothered with it. I, I, you know, it was it made an obtuse game opaque. Um, so <laughs> I just I couldn't deal with that. So I never really, you know, uh, uh, delved into that. I mean, maybe there's a great system there, and I blew it off too early. But you know, to me, uh, it, it it looks like there was an opportunity for that direct player interaction that. It, you know, was missed here. And, um, you know, I, I think that if Glory to Rome um, and Innovation uh, are two card games that have proven anything, they're games that have proven that you can have a lot of direct player interaction uh, in a deck-building style card game. Uh, you know, you, you, you can definitely have that. Um mm. So, although I, 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 that's a misnomer because I don't know that I would say Glory to Rome is, is a deck building game. It's it, but but it is that role selection kind of mechanic. Right. Um, so you know, I don't know. What do you think about the player interaction in this game? Is that something that bothers you, or are you okay with it? Uh, you know, it's something that I feel is lacking in the hobby as a whole. Let's say. I okay. mean, obviously, if you play war games, then you have tons of interaction. But I, I think in sort of the Euro game and the card game area, we are missing a lot of that, at least with the more popular games. Uh, you know, Race for Galaxy, San Juan, I would kind of disagree that I don't think Glory of Rome has that much player interaction. I mean, you have the uh, Legionnaire action, um, but I haven't played, I only played that probably five times, so maybe I'm missing something there, but... Uh, I don't see that as highly interactive. Now, I do agree that innovation has a lot of crazy interaction. Oh, yeah. Uh, and um, I really enjoy that game as well. And that's a that's a really interesting game. Maybe uh, another episode can be done on that one. But uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that one that one is, is, I think, succeeds at that level. Now, the problem with innovation, I think, not necessarily a problem, but it does take experience with the cards, and you've got to kind of know... Uh, what the um, the resources are going to shift, you know, from age to age. Yep. Uh, so, like the uh, I don't remember the name of the resource, the red resource. Yes. <laughs> in yeah. age like four or something. Right. You know, becomes vital. Those are factories, I believe. To... Yeah, the factories become super important. Uh, you know, yeah. whereas uh, crowns are real important in age two and three. That that's the symbol, I believe, for money and currency. So, right. yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. Um, you know, and, and, and innovation, mm-hmm. I would also add, is a game that uh, is highly dependent on the number of players that you're playing with. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. You know, which, which, is, which is a huge deal. But, yeah, I am kind of curious as to why it is that uh, why it seems like it's like a necessity in game design nowadays that if you're going to have player interaction, it's got to be like a five- or six-hour game. I, I don't quite understand why... <laughs> You know, Twilight Imperium can have player interaction through the whole political phase and the direct conflict. Um, or, you know, there, there's other games, of course, that, that have a lot of direct player interaction. But there are these long games, you know, Dominant Species. Um, there's a, a ton of direct player interaction and uh, conflict. and You know, but that's, that's not a short game either. So I, I wonder what it is in game design that maybe I need to be educated about that would explain to me why player interaction and conflict seems to be the sole providence of three to six hour games because I, I, I think that there's a missed opportunity here. And I, I'd love someone like Jeff Engelstein to explain to me why you can't have direct player interaction in a one hour game. 
Um, well, I think you can. I mean, a few acres of snow has direct player interaction up the wazoo, and that's that should only take about an hour. That's true, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I don't know, have you ever played Omen? Uh, Reign of War. It's a two-player card game. You know, I played that once. My friend Lloyd mm-hmm. has that game, and and I played it once, and I was pretty impressed with it. Um, but you know, I missed yeah. the whole campaign for it, and it was originally, I think, a Cloudus uh, small box game, which is always super tiny print runs. And then right. this was the Kickstarter, and and if you miss that boat, it's gone. And I don't think there's any way to get a hold of it. But yeah, I did play it, and that had a lot of interaction as well. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, you know, as soon as I say that, I'm thinking, okay, I just named two two-player games. <laughs> now, two-player interaction is a whole other ball of wax compared to multiplayer interaction. So right. I think actually you might be onto something there with the sort of short hour, maybe hour and a half or less uh, interactive game with a multiplayer, you know, setup. Um Boy, I'm, I'm really racking my brain to kind of come up with a like a Euro or a card game or yeah, a non-war game. Right, that's not just that, blocking. Yeah. Um, yeah. There isn't really. And I don't know if it's just – I think there maybe is a little bit of evolution that needs to happen. Um, you know, I could say, you know, we've got Eclipse, which has some Euro elements, but still very much a sort of war, trashy kind of game, thematic yes. game. Uh, but it's also not very short. It's also not very long. But, um, but yeah, I think there's there's probably some evolution that just needs to happen, and people need to sort of experiment with uh, some you know different types of interaction that aren't um, aren't totally chaotic and, and will sort of offend the sensibilities of somebody that likes really smooth mechanics and not be too random, you know, because, you know, with interaction, you don't want it to be totally predictable. Right. Um, I mean, a couple of games that are coming to mind just off the top of my head are Neuroshima Hex, which I just recently started playing because I got an iPad. and uh, Tigers and Euphrates. Tigers and Euphrates, that's a, that's a great uh, example of interaction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they, they're few and far between. Yeah, there are. So I, do, do you um, think there's any connection, Joel, between... Um, the one of the one of the hallmarks of Euros that that, that I found it since I've been playing and, and and looking at games in the hobby is the idea of no player elimination, okay? Mm-hmm. And the idea that everyone's in the game until the end, and a lot of of Euro games strive for either balance or catch-up mechanisms or bash the leader mechanisms that will keep everybody invested and interested in the game until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm wondering if maybe that's why we we're having this problem with direct player conflict or interaction is that it's kind of, you know, are, do you think maybe that there's a fear that the further you go down that road, the further you start creeping back towards games where there is player elimination or, yeah. or, uh, you know, putting a player in a position where, you know, an hour or, or 30 minutes into the game, they realize that they have no hope of ever winning and so therefore either have to become kingmakers or they kind of sit in the corner and sulk and play out the rest of the game knowing they right. have no hope or no chance. So do you think maybe that, that that's maybe a reason why player interaction has been so sparse and hard to find? Because it's it's hard to do those things... And not run the risk of a player getting completely bashed to the point right. where they really don't have any a chance in the game as as far as winning goes. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the the finer hallmarks of the Euro game is the fact that everybody is um, kept up to speed and everybody can be involved for the whole hour or two hours. Whereas if you're eliminated then or or effectively eliminated, then you are wasting your hour at the, you know the last half of the game. Right. So yeah, I mean it's you got to come up with a way, I think, to have the interaction or maybe it's just a redefining of what that means uh, to keep sort of those hallmarks alive. Uh, now, if a game has like a proper um, catch-up mechanism, then, you know, then maybe you can have a little bit more interaction. But then does the interaction lose its importance, you know? Yeah, people so often I, complain I, about yeah. catch-up mechanisms, yeah. Yeah, so if I attack Billy and then hurt him, great. But then if he's got a catch-up mechanism to basically bring him halfway or three-quarters of the way back to where he was anyway, then I'm not going to bother attacking him anyway because it's not going to do as be as effective as I want it to be. Right. But it's tricky. You know, it's hard. I mean, it's not an easy problem to solve, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a game designer, and uh, there's a reason for that. <laughs> right. uh, you know, I don't think I could solve those problems either. So, you know, it's easy yeah. for, for, for me to sit here and criticize. But, you know, that being said, I, I, I think that the questions need to be asked. And, and uh, Absolutely. you know, I, I'm trying to think, like, there, there's a game that I'm playtesting right now. It's actually in the Board Game Geek database there called Hegemonic. Um which is kind oh, of you. yeah, it's it's uh, and see, this is a game that I think meets the criteria that we're talking about in that it has a lot of direct player interaction, and yet there's some aspects in the game that are built in that make it so that you know you're probably never going to be completely out of it. And and one of the things the designer did that I liked um, was he has just a very basic rule that says. Look, no matter what happens to you, you can never be attacked in your home sector. You know, so you're you're always going. You're never going to be knocked out of the game. You can get kicked around like a tin can, but you're never going to be knocked out of the game. And because of the way the game is structured and the way the game flows, you can recover very quickly in that game. And so I, I think you can you can have direct player interaction and conflict in a game that's that's played in a reasonable time like we're talking about, but there there have to be some. Uh, th- there's two things. There either have to be like you said a catch up mechanism or a zone of safety that that is like you know impervious. Or the other thing that occurs to me is uh, I've only played that that new game, that hegemonic, a couple of times, but it reminds me a little bit of Dominant Species in that, you know, in Dominant Species, you can get completely trounced to the point where you think Mm -hmm. you you are out, you are done, you're toast, forget about it, and then three turns later, you're in third place or second place. Um, so there, there seems to, and, and one of the things about that is that, you know, there's a lot of fluidity in that game. And I think that if you can maintain that sort of fluid state, um, with maybe some of that randomness we're talking about with maybe some of uh, that, that, that can make it so that everybody knows that they have a chance. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't mind knowing I'm not going to win a game. I just want to know I have a chance. Right. And as long as I I feel, yeah. Well, I think that a lot of it is the expectations, too, because it's all about the target market and the target player. Because if I'm going to play a game with my wife or maybe some other family members or casual games or even other, you know, quote-unquote hardcore gamers, and we go into a game expecting that we could be eliminated or effectively 
eliminated, then I think you're okay with it. But if you're going into the game and you want to have a, a session where everybody's going to stay involved and active and participate in a positive way, then you're just going to choose a different game. Now, I think what's tricky, and like you're talking about hegemonic, which I haven't played, uh, but if you want to send me your your uh, copy, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll see if um, Oliver's got another copy to send to you. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's it looks like I, it's a good game. Um, I'm I'm happy to be working with him on that. Uh, but yeah, no, I think right. your your thing about expectations is totally right. Right, and so the thing is that's tricky though is I I think it's hard to water down a game kind of as too much of a hybrid. You know, and I think maybe that's sort of a fear with Eminent Domain. Now, I know that Seth uh, Jaffe has said uh, a couple times on Board Game Geek that they are planning on doing some kind of PvP or player interaction. Right. Um, but I know the guy that designed Core Worlds has said absolutely no way is he going to put any player interaction in there. And so I think basically whatever that core kernel of a design is, you got to be real careful that it stays true to itself, you know. Um and so, getting, kind of getting back to eminent domain after this discussion, um, you know, I don't necessarily fault the game. Now, it sounds like they are going to have player action, but and I, and I hope that they pull it off. Yeah, so do I. I mean, because that would kick it up a totally different level. Yeah, and it is something that I do, I do think adds to the replayability and the longevity of a game is player interaction. Yeah. So, but it's not something I automatically fault the game for. But I do, you know, getting back to Emmett Domain, I do think that if they added that, that's going to add the that variability to keep the game sort of on the shelf and in the collection for sure. I think you're right about that, and here's why. Um, if you add the player versus player, mm-hmm. then not only you're going to be looking at the, the variability and the replayability, but it makes the abstracted nature of the engine of that game much more palatable. And, and the, again, the parallel I'm going to draw is Tigris and Euphrates. When I'm playing Tigris and Euphrates, I, I don't really feel like I'm building a civilization in Mesopotamia, okay? I, I, I have blue tiles, I have green tiles, I have red tiles and black tiles, and I'm putting them on the board, and it's pretty much a completely abstract game, yeah? But when that yeah. player conflict, when, when that interaction happens, whether it is by someone bringing their leader into my city to challenge my leader, or by two kingdoms being joined... There is just now this huge level of uh, interaction and sort of excitement in the game that makes that sort of abstract kind of vanilla feel disappear a little bit. At least in my mind it does. I'm not going to speak for anybody else. But when you add that player versus player, it just – it it kicks it up just enough of a notch and spices it up enough that – uh, I think it would be a huge improvement in the game because then uh, it's not just going to be about how beautiful and efficient can I make this little engine run. Uh, and it is a nice engine, boy. But now it becomes also this this interesting kind of game of going and grabbing some technologies while at the same time trying to mess with my opponent. And, and I yeah. think that that would improve it tremendously. Yeah, and I think that uh, there's something about inter- interactivity and theme. And, like, if you t- think about Tigers and Euphrates, you're right. It's blue tiles, red tiles, green tiles. Mm-hmm. But once it becomes about area control, mm-hmm. 
then you actually have physical space. You know, it's in a game board, but it's also in reality that you are fighting with your buddies over. Yeah. And so I think uh, sort of mentally, at least for me, I'm able to get much more into the game because, yeah, you're fighting over a square piece of cardboard, but that's my square piece of cardboard, <laughs> you know. And Get so I think that hands off it, you dang dirty ape. That's exactly right. That's right. <laughs> so I think if they're if they could work in some kind of territory or you can take over the planets, then people are going to go, oh, okay, this isn't just victory points I flipped over in front of me. This is my planet. Right. Right. <laughs> and absolutely. I want, and I don't want you to have it. <laughs> yeah, because there is that sort of visceral kind of reaction when someone tries to take something from you. Um, right. You know, we, we, we talked about innovation earlier. You know, someone just takes all my scorecards out of my score pile. I, I'm not happy about that. I'm, I'm, a little, <laughs> yeah. I'm a little ticked off about it, and I'm looking for a way that I can get them back. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that just makes it, uh, like you said, it, it, it increases your emotional investment in the game. But right. I think it's also really interesting. I'm going to circle back to another one of your earlier points, which is what is your expectation in the game, right? Because mm-hmm. when I look at a game like Agricola, I have no expectation of interaction in that game. I'm like some dirt farmer and his poor huddled family trying to build up this farm so that I don't starve to death and die, right? And, right. and there's there's no you know, there's no thought in my head of raiding farmers from other villages coming to steal my chickens. <laughs> like there's just no there's no expectation on my part of interplayer sort of activity in that. So, you know, I think that's why I'm so willing to accept the sort of just blocking and, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of interaction in that game. Because thematically for me, I don't expect anything more than that. I, mm-hmm. I really don't. But, you know, right. when it comes to something like space exploration and conquering and coming in contact with new civilizations and, and what have you, all of these things that all of these space games talk to us about, I have an expectation of interaction. I have an expectation of excitement. I don't have an expectation of me doing my thing while you do your thing. And I look across and go, hey, how's it going, man? And they're like, <laughs> right. yeah, I got some red planets, man. Those are nice red planets. <laughs> Bully for you. You know, like, it just it doesn't yeah. it doesn't work for me. It doesn't fit the theme. And, and maybe that's, you know, that expectation piece that you're talking about that I think you could be very well right. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I think. When you think space, you think Star Wars or Star Trek or Last Starfighter or whatever, and and you expect there to be some some dogfights or yeah. something. You yeah, know? yeah, you expect yeah. there to be a little bit of something. So, I, yeah. so um, one of the things that I, I want to sort of touch base on here is um, uh, I know it sounds like I'm like uh, you know pushing for this guy, but uh, Oliver Kiley. Um, is a board game geek user, and he did a blog post recently that I thought was really interesting. And he was talking about critical reviews. Um, and w- you know, w- one of the things that he thought was needed for critical review were these sort of general sort of questions and categories, like putting the game in context, which I think we've done here, and talking about the decision space in the game, um, which I think we've talked about as well. You know, this idea of you know, what, what are the de- possible decisions in the game? How does the game work? Uh, how many meaningful choices are you going to make? And, and I think that this game has a lot of meaningful choices in its core mechanic and engine, but that the meaningful choices seem to almost diminish as the game goes on. 
But what, what would you say to that? Like that that early sort of strategy that I adopt, whether it be colonization, warfare, that's really important. But then as the game wears on, it almost seems like um, the, 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 your deck has its own built-in momentum, and it becomes mm-hmm. difficult to change your, your track completely. What would you say to that? Uh, I would agree that you, you, once the game gets to its conclusion, you can't shift gears. But I wouldn't say it was totally devoid of, of decision, because as you start to uh, think or dissent and get more cards in your hand, and then maybe make choices on whether or not to do that, and then also at the end of your turn, uh, what cards you choose to get rid of and right. draw back up. Now, it's not earth-shattering decisions, and it can be obvious right. what you should do, but... I have had games where it's like, huh, okay, well, what should I do? I'm sort of three-quarters of the way through the game. Do I want to get another planet? You know, I'm going to settle this one soon. Do I want to preemptively get another planet to, you know, start to settle later? Or should I kind of work, get another technology card? So I would say probably, yeah, the last few turns can be sort of anticlimactic, I guess. Okay. But uh, I do agree that the magnitude of this decisions does you know, curved down. Right. But for, for me, I still stay involved. I still, uh, you know, have a little bit of, uh, you know, noodling in my brain that has to happen. Um, I have seen a game in the game I just played, actually. I ended up tying the other guy and I was clearly in the lead <laughs> until he sprung a massive trade of like 12 points or something on the very last turn. Wow. And I didn't see that, so he had kind of been preparing for that. Uh, and luckily enough, he was able to squeeze it off. So definitely in his mind, the end of the game was momentous. I mean, it brought him all the way up to tie me. Right. And he actually won on a tiebreaker because of a bunch of army ships laying around. Uh, so I think it kind of depends on what you're doing. But I wouldn't say it's totally devoid. I mean... I, so there, there you have it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 and, and if I said totally devoid, then I probably misspoke. It, it just seemed like yeah. I, I like what you said actually better, which is that it seems to curve downwards as yeah. the game progresses, um, and, and it kind of, uh, in some ways, that thematically works for me. You know, the idea that you know once you start moving in a certain direction, you're probably going, you know, just by inertia alone. Um, mm-hmm. to, to, to move that way. I think another game that brilliantly kind of captures that idea, um, at least that part of the game, is uh, Martin Wallace's uh, Rise of Empires. Um, okay. Not Struggling not Empires, that. but Rise of Empires. And, and he has a mechanic in that game that's called the A-turn and the B-turn. And basically what that means is whatever actions you select during the whole first kind of phase or turn of the game, you're going to have to perform those actions again later right. uh, on the way back through the B turn. And, and it, he, he said that he put that in there to simulate that inertia factor of, you know, when a civilization starts moving towards warfare – they're not going to all of a sudden just stop and start thinking about ways to improve themselves culturally. It's just, mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, it, it, the decisions that you make are going to have a more lasting impact. And I think that this game models that as well. So that's yeah, something, absolutely. Yeah, it's something that I do appreciate. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, 
the the decisions that I feel that I'm making in the game do sort of spiral downwards as the game uh, moves on. So, well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this game uh, with me. You know, it's one of those games that's a tough call for me because there's so many things about it that I like, and then there's a lot of things that I I wish for more. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's an important distinction. It's not things that I don't like. It's things that I'm hoping for improvements in, things that will maybe happen. And I think the game design lends itself to some of the things that we've been talking about. So I'm going to be really curious to see what this expansion's like. Um, yeah. I have hopes for this game, um, you know, as far as being a, a longer-lasting game. But I'm not entirely sold, to be quite honest with you. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts about this game, Joel? Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty much on the same page as you as far as that goes. I think I probably like it a little bit more. Um, I think from a sort of a critical uh, perspective, uh, I think this game has enough going on that it's worth a purchase and it has enough plays in it as a, as a base game. But I do agree that, you know, I'm getting around almost 30 plays and it's probably wearing out its welcome until an expansion comes out. So, and I think if a game, I don't know what the number of plays is that makes a game worthwhile, but I'm sure 25 is probably adequate, at least for me personally. Right. Uh, so I would say, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I probably seem to like it a little bit more, but I am definitely on the same page as far as, you know, wanting more expansion material. Right, right. Well, Joel, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, uh, come and talk with me about uh, Eminent Domain. I also want to take the time to uh, personally thank you for uh, all of the work that you've done for me behind the scenes in trying to get this podcast up and running and off the ground as seamlessly as it has been through a lot of guidance and uh, uh, personal patience on your part. So I want to thank you for that. Um, I also want to thank uh, uh, Oliver Kiley for his article that he posted that has continued to try to uh, continue to help me sort of refine my thoughts processes on you know what things i really need to focus on and think about when we're looking at a more critical analysis of games and of course i want to send out a great thank you to all of the people at 2d6.org who are gracious enough to host the longview podcast Um, the podcast is on uh, 2d6.org and if you have any questions or comments about this episode please feel free to post there and i appreciate any feedback or comments that you have so joel thank you very much for uh, joining me this evening Oh, my pleasure, Jeff. And thank you out there for listening to The Long View. Have a great night.